Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest on the program today is Lisa B. Thompson, author of a new collection of three plays out from Northwestern University Press, Underground, Monroe, and The Momologues. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you. I am so happy to be chatting with you. I love to. I, I love the opportunity to say the monologue or the, the monologues out loud. I feel like that's just one of those inspired titles. Thank you. A lot of people have had mixed um, responses to it, but it really fits. I think um, the style of the of the play and also um, kind of a tongue in cheek nod to the vagina monologues too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly in that lineage for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about your background and how you started writing plays? I, that's a good question. My background is I was born and raised in San Francisco um, among um, migrants from the South to California and big, big storytellers. uh, And I think that I fell in love with story and um, um, narrative from being read to um, at night, my mom um, would read to my brother and I. And then one day we were hanging out a, a rainy day and decided to write stories. Um, and I've been writing ever since. It was That was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And um, yeah, continue to do that. And then, and then you know, deciding, going from poetry, short stories to poetry, and then uh, theater kind of became the place to land completely because it, uh, spoke to all of my, um, I guess, creative juices where I'd like to uh, create characters and also um, worlds completely and also like to watch people um, perform live. So that's probably what give probably the sense of that. And I also remember going to the opera with my mom at San Francisco and thinking about like our different, you know, for, for, uh, live performance and thinking how amazing that is to see people right that, that close to you um but encompassing a different world there's also a real musicality to your plays uh not just because each one of them comes with a pre-show playlist but <laughs> but you know just the the sense of the musicality of the 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 dialogue it flows very naturally and you have a, a great way of establishing character through really specific dialogue all your characters sound distinct and and unique and and individual do you feel like that was part of what drew you to plays that kind of uh adjacent to music uh nature of of theater that's i'm actually dying to write a musical uh at some point um i feel that it's important to me that the each character has its own unique voice and that those voices are ones that i haven't seen on stage very often or very much people that I grew up listening to, um, my parents' friends, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my friends in school. Um, and I want to do more of that and, and, and actually 
it's hopefully get to the point where I'm also representing the, well, the next play I'm working on, um, Gold, which is kind of, it's, which is part of my great migration trilogy, which begins with Monroe. Um, and Gold is set in San Francisco in the 1970s. And maybe it's a way for me to kind of capture the world I lived in, which was broader than just the African-American migrant community in the Bay Area, but also my best friend from El Salvador and my other friends from the Philippines and um, this, that, that um, really diverse working class um, community that I grew up in. So yeah, those voices are important, to, I think, for people to hear and understand. Um, the worlds we put on stage sometimes don't really reflect all of our um, sensibility or sense of the world. And, and my, I guess my charge right now is to kind of do more of that. Yeah, that w- one thing that's very clear in your plays is that the African American uh, community is really uh, central. I mean, I'm not sure there's a there's a character in these three plays that isn't black. <laughs> um, was that something that you kind of consciously chose to do? That you wanted to represent your community in a way that it hadn't been seen before, or hadn't had had rarely been seen on stage, or was that just sort of the natural way to tell the stories that occurred to you? Well, I think the yes and no that 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 because there is there are um, is one white character in Monroe, which is Dr. Wyatt Wyland, um, who um, is only, only appears in the beginning and was played in Austin by this fabulous actor Huck, Huckabee. Um, that's a great name. Um, and um, but um, <laughs> I think that the reason why, well, and also in the monologues, they the char- the three characters play a variety of people. So they Mm -hmm. morph into men to white women to all these other different folks. So those those characters are unnamed, but exist um, in the kind of the universe and the world of these characters. Um, And I think that um, for me, the people I wanted to, the characters I wanted to to create who dominate the work um, definitely are those that we rarely get a chance to see, I think, uh, or hear from, um, even though they are, many of them are privileged uh, black folks. Right. I, that's another thing I noticed in your uh, plays and, and I gather in your scholarly work as well, is there's a real focus on sort of middle-class, professional-class African-American people, which is, yeah, not the common, uh, there's often a common kind of association between blackness and poverty, but obviously those two things don't necessarily go together. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what do you feel like um, drew you to that specific kind of subsection of the African-American uh, uh, community? I found it really fascinating um, that I grew up in San Francisco and um, when I got to college, um, another black woman from the same city lived on my floor and uh, finding out that she lived an entirely different world than I did, that Mm. she was a debutante. Um, I remember her having uh, Laura Ashley comforter and a matching pillow sham and (laughs) <laughs> and, and and also the matching um, wallpaper to go on her bulletin board. I didn't know what a pillow sham was or a comforter. I was how happy to have a new bedspread. I thought that that was you know I was living it up, and um, and I remember you know um, she was a really wonderful person and but we lived in different worlds and literally I lived on the other side of the tracks, um, which were the tracks in San Francisco are the BART tracks, which were put in and, and, and um, decimated the neighborhood that I grew up in. Actually, I. Um, by the time I was aware of the world, those those homes were all gone. My siblings talked about the other families that lived across the street from us. And when, by the time I got 
came to consciousness um, because Bart starts in 1972. And I was, uh, so I remember looking out, it was for a while kind of just this barren land that was being you know, developed for Bart and then Bart comes in. So I guess that, um, uh, I don't know. It's, I forgot what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, so it started as, as you grew up in a more working class background yes, sorry, and, and yes, it originally yes. was a sort of fascination with that lifestyle. But, you know, now you're a, a, a scholar of African-American studies and you've, you've published multiple plays. Do you feel like um, you are at home among that milieu now, even though you didn't grow up in it? Or, or do you still feel like like it's a it's a group that you're kind of on the outside looking in? Um, both. I mean, so I think when you, when someone experiences class ascension in their own lifetime, right. Um, I'm a first generation college educated and, um, um, my parents were brilliant people, but did not have, um, college degrees. So they did fit, you know, both as, as they say, the, the term is did some college. Um, my mother was very close to finishing, um, and had transferred from city college, San Francisco to San Francisco state. And I was really proud of her and supported her uh, as she was working on toward that degree. Um, and one of my sad, one of my sad things that I never was able to um, have her finish. I think she was very shy, maybe 20 credits from finishing, but um, she raised a daughter that went on to get her PhD from Stanford and was instrumental in all of my education from her, um, like I said, reading to us at night, but also making, taking me to the public library, um, all the time. Um, I remember going to the library with her and getting my, you know, the, the maximum was 14 books and, you know, pushing like my load across the wooden uh, desk and a woman looking at me and seeing this little black girl and saying, you know, those are due in two weeks. I'm looking at her like, honey, I don't need two weeks. Just give me six days. It'll be done. I'll be back, you know, <laughs> sit down, you know, and um, it was interesting. Yeah. So, so I think um, I also want to talk about the desire of folks like my parents who want their children to have uh, more access to intellectual stimulation and certain kind of um, lifestyle. But I've also had friends that remind me that I grew up with that said, you know, your family in our community was the, you know, was the middle-class family that you had, you know, your father lived at home. You guys lived in a house and didn't rent. You had a car, you had all these things. And so um, I also got a sense of how broad middle-classness is, right? So, I thought mm-hmm. we were we were solidly middle class. I believed until I got to college and saw these other you know, African American um, students who had different kind of lifestyles. Then and um, and then going being at Stanford as a graduate student was really um, a. I taught my first my first time taught teaching a course called the Black Middle Class, and having all these students um, who I think everyone's kind of performing a certain kind of racial authenticity, which means. And working class in, in terms of performance, and then spring break came. I remember they were talking. Uh, so one, you know, one, one was going to ski in Sweden, and another, you know, the Swiss Alps. Another one was <laughs> going to the Caribbean, you know, for a boating trip. And, and it was like, you know, all, what are you going to do? You know, all of a sudden, all the whole the, the, the whole performance is gone. And you know, what are you doing for spring break? And I, until I got to Stanford, I, they never had been around that much wealth. I'm UCLA. I was went to undergrad at UCLA. Um, the kind of wealth that I noticed among um, you know, being black graduate students who had gone to Andover and Phillips, you know, Academy, you know, Exeter and what have you, mm-hmm. uh, definitely was interesting. And also found out that uh, summer is not 
just, you know, it's, it's not just a noun, but it's also a verb, as in where, where do you? <laughs> Summer. Yeah, you, we summer on the yeah, cave. Exactly. You know, and do you see yeah. you know, you know, summer up in Sagatuck or summer in, you know, long, you know, on Sag Harbor or what have you? So that was a category. But but also when you grow up in California, you, where are you going to go summer? You don't need to. You just go to you know the beaches right. <laughs> You're mm-hmm. the place. Everyone's coming coming to where you are to to be um, in many ways. So that was also you know part of it. But I um, think that when you look at the African-American middle class or the black middle class and see the ways in which um, they, despite all of following all of the rules, ticking off all the boxes, um, the kinds of, um, if they're catching hell, then what are the less privileged encountering? And mm-hmm. I'm the person that's in the room that's going, wants to make sure that, Everybody's aware of that group, um, whether it's a room full of people who are uh, who are third generation black people, college educated, but also and when I'm you know often navigating school systems on behalf of my son uh, that are not aware of um, how their policies um, would exclude me. So if I was navigating matriculating now, I would not have the career that I have because the doors closed behind my generation, the ways mm-hmm. in which um, affirmative action programs, I'm a proud affirmative action baby, changed the professional classes. I, I have good friends who are all first generation, college educated, were part of the, the um, UC, University of California system's um, decision to bring in uh, the, the top students in you know across the, the state and to make the University of California, this beautiful jewel, crown jewel of the state, uh, representative of the all of the people who are citizens who pay into the taxes that you know, help support, not completely support, but help support these p- public education. And, and, and so I have friends who were doctors and lawyers and dentists and executives um, who of, of my generation who would not be able to get into those schools um, now in many ways. So, so there's that. And I always think, you know, being in all these different, you know, rooms, very clear once you're in those rooms um, and you're on the committees deciding certain things, that it is not about how, uh, I, I hate gifted and talented programs. You know, every child is gifted and talented if you give them a chance to um, enjoy their gifts, if they're worried about what they're going to eat or right now for all the children who are not doing access to, have, have access to um, internet, right? Which should be mm-hmm. a common good that is not, no one needs to pay for. Right now, going around our city, there's buses, public public buses that are are, are going to school sites, so people can have Wi-Fi. So, can you imagine being in a car trying to do your homework or be in class because you're mm-hmm. at home. I mean, so so we we were unwilling to have an honest conversation about what what allowed me to get where I am was, but you know, my mother figured out how to play the corners, as Jay Z would say, right? Where the hustlers be. Okay, here's a, here's a free summer program at Stern Grove in San Francisco for my kids to go to summer camp. Um, here's um, Penny Opera, so they can get exposed to Leontine Price at San Francisco Opera. Here, it's it's used a public uh, library system. Um, My brother and I were eager, uh, my older siblings, um, my parents had four four kids in 14 years, so I'm the youngest of four. So my older siblings were already kind of out in the world, but my brother and I were three years apart, and we were hungry, and our careers seemed to reflect uh, her ability to do those things. And literally, a woman was, I guess, sent to jail for 
using a uh, different address to have her child go to a certain school. My mother did the same thing for us, is having mm-hmm. borrowed an address so we can go to school in Delhi City, which was a suburb south of San Francisco, right in the county. We're right, right there on the line. And our professional lives has played out in that way. So when people talk about, I mean, it's, 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 I'm sorry, I'm going to tear here because no, it's no, cool. this is all great because because I, I get I get really upset because I know education is everything, and even in, in the idea of good schools, I'm like for African American parents who are much like myself, who my you know my peers who are, you know also college educated, you really your choice is between a school that is quote unquote a good school that is um, resourced, or um, but will not um, speak to. Black Lives Matter will not speak to, will only talk about um, King and some kind of um, cartoonish, I have a dream thing while talking about how he was a, had a war on poverty, while he was talking about the war in Vietnam, that basically the ways in which our kids will not be, they're culturally and politically um, fed, but intellectually in a way that S, that leads to a certain kind of SAT and GPA, but mm-hmm. not kind of a, a whole citizen. Or you put your child in a school that's going to be culturally sound, but is under-resourced. So I see schools, and you know, people would be surprised to find out. I will ask you, uh, guess, do you have any idea what, what the most segregated school system is in Texas? In Texas? Um, you know, you're, you're based in Austin. I'll guess Austin. <laughs> um, Travis County, which is Austin, which is seen yeah. as blue city in the red state. It's the most segregated. Right. Well, New York is also one of the most segregated exactly. school districts in the country. And the, yeah. no, no, there, it is number one, actually. New York is number okay. one. So, 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 <laughs> but in terms of Texas, people say, oh, God, you know, that must be, it must be Dallas or whatever. So I, the liberal uh, folks, you know, are maintaining and hoarding resources in order to maintain the class, their, their class position. And so that's why class is fascinating to me is watching how people hoard resources, whether, um, and, and maintain them and have, have a sense of meritocracy at the same time. It's hilarious to me because I look at the schools here and now these, they stay at home moms with, you know, MBAs and JD who are able to fundraise and have these huge budgets for the PTA because they are, have the time because you know, it's just easier right now because, you know, with, with, with Jennifer and Josh at home, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, versus the family right. who's across town, whose parents are doing our quote unquote essential laborers, right? Um, um, who are putting their lives on the line to make sure you can put gas into your um, Lexus, <laughs> and so what have you. So, so yes, yeah, so I'm very fascinated with the way in which class is a open um, horror in American life, and I think about the ways in which African Americans. Um, navigate that too and thinking if I follow the rules then my life will be um, better and it is better but at what cost to one's soul but also um, you still have to navigate um, all the institutional racism and in and, and, and ways that, uh, without having a community around you um, to back you up so it's a, you know, so yeah it's a, I can go on about that but <laughs> No, no, that's that's great. So, I mean, getting back to the plays, I feel like this is one of the major themes of your play, Underground, which is a two-hander featuring one character who was born into wealth, uh, but kind of self-consciously uh, styles himself as a working-class Black advocate. Uh, and then you have another character who was uh, born in South Central LA, but who sort of... Uh, 
chases the the status symbols of uh, of wealth and of mainstream acceptance, and he's a, a high powered lawyer with this. Uh, you describe him having a, a beautiful turntable with a very expensive set of speakers and having you know great taste in wine, and he 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 cooks healthy food and all of these kind of uh, upper middle class signifiers, and yet he comes from this very. Uh, a working class background. Could you talk a little bit more about how you wanted to explore those themes in the context of this play in particular, Underground? Oh, gosh. Underground um, came out of my experience living through the L.A. uprisings um, after Rodney King, the Rodney King verdict of the Simi Valley, the Simi Valley verdict of those policemen that beat him. Um, and thinking about... Um, the, 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 what it feels like to be in a state of emergency. Um, and so this is, you know, predates what happened this, this year around George mm-hmm. Floyd and others. So this, this play was, um, and also I wanted to have a conversation or open conversation of how, what's really going to make the country change. Um, if, if we, and if you put it in the hands of those, the most, uh, oftentimes, those people who, who are uh, on MSNBC or CNN or even Fox, the talking heads, um, are folks who are not living the same kinds of um, lives that of the folks that are often victimized by the police, right? Um, mm-hmm. The same way, uh, my friend um, here, Louis Gates, of course, had to, did, you know found himself on the wrong side of the law trying to get into his home um, and. Um, a lot of people thought that, oh, well, you know, good, let him, let him experience that. And it's like, I, I, I was really disappointed in that sense of really, because I'm like, well, uh-huh. I went to Stanford. And so if this happened to me, you would laugh about it gleefully as well, because there's a perception that um, you have the life, the, 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 yeah, the, so it's something to be us to, to examine, I think, around that. So I wanted to play with what it means for um, someone to, have class ascension and try to do do things that are going to help change the status quo. Um, and then someone who has lived a life of privilege and decides to, that, that he uh, wants to uh, change the status quo. Um, and but but in some ways he becomes a, a star uh, as in, in that way too, right? So he's not just it's, it's, it's in the play that no one's clean. I guess is, is the mm-hmm. And and the hard truth is, will voting, and that's what people are debating about something like voting for the for the right candidate, quote unquote, really change um, some of the insidious things. I think what happened in April was that we can't, we no longer can um, operate as if in our day to day lives, people are are, are not. Are choose are not choosing to ignore. It's clear that every that people are choosing to ignore the fact that we have systemic and long long standing inequality and kind of policies and institutional um, um, functions that maintain um, a racial hierarchy, and mm-hmm. that and pointing to to my life. Um, I, you know, I always push back about this. Like, well, look what happened with you. It's like, um, and I saw, I use it. I quote Willie Brown, who was who ran the legislature in California for many, mm-hmm. many, many years, and he was actually the mentor to Kamala Harris. And so I, I saw him at a Silicon Graphics, Silicon Valley. Um, he gave a talk for like Black History Month, 
and I was also in the um, presenting at that. And he, someone asked him, he said, "You people say to me all the time, hey, Willie, you know, look at you, you're, you ran the California legislature, and you know, how can you say there's discrimination?" He, and he said, "Well, look at you know my skill set." He said, "If things were actually fair, Bill Clinton would be my chauffeur." <laughs> and, 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 and it, was, it was hilarious, but also like you know, so you right. look at you know, some black excellence people point to. It's like, well, you know, for instance, we just watched the debates um, mm-hmm. uh, of with, with, uh, Senator uh, Harris and Vice President Pence. And for me, uh, getting back to the question of you know what it means to to decide uh, how we're going to change this country, if we are all honest with ourselves, seriously honest with ourselves, I mean, look at Trump. And we look at Pence, and we look at Biden, and we look at Harris. The only person that really belongs in that group is Harris. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, yeah. young, vibrant, smart. I mean, all the things are there. It's like, what do you? So, if if we're talking about meritocracy, <laughs> to me, it's the same. Like, are we really going to act like they're all equal? She's <laughs> superior, far superior than all three of them. Well, you know, it's ridiculous. So that's what, so I understand when young people look at me and say, why should I vote? It's a charade. So this Mm -hmm. is the the, the, the conversation, you know, hope people will will read in the underground or hopefully produce because it's only been produced once and people are saying, whoo, it's a little too hot to touch Uh, because it does deal with the idea of insurrection, you know, insurrection and protest in a way that um, we have not talked about in a long time. So, um, I think that if we're that that we're we need to have some more honest conversations and and, and just be saying we're we're willing to um get like you know donate to the Boys and Girls Club and to NAACP and these other things and but then I look at my son's school you know you know, this, you know nebulous person I'm, I'm I'm creating this kind of you know mock up person and I look at my child's school and don't see anybody of color there except for a black judge's kid. And a you know uh, a uh, engineer's kid, and, and and think that all is well um, in the world. And you, come on, um, I don't. I, I yeah. So I I, I I just say that I think we think we uh, need to be also more open as a country about class and how it reproduces itself. Um, my son is able to go to certain kinds of schools. Um, it's not some kind of surprise, you know, the kind of access he has, what kind of summer enrichment I'm going to provide for him. Um, of course, I want, I want to, this to live in a world where I, the, the, the child that I was who didn't have parents that can do that is in the classroom with him. So he's not the only one because that's not a prize. You get to be the only black kid. Although one of the, he was at a middle school with only six black kids out of you know hundreds, I mean, it's like what do you? Yeah, and people are complaining like, oh my god, this year nobody can get in because because they made it more represent a tag more representative. <laughs> it was like it's growing, and I said, so, so you mean all the seats that were taken from that community for the last thirty years? You mean that's what you're complaining about that those seats now went to? And, 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 and again, talking about I mean, literally three more Jeez. Jeez. Um, <laughs> in the in the liberal city. Um, so. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It does seem like there's that that when it comes to the issue of schools, that's that's the moment where the sort of polite white liberal racism really uh, comes to the surface. But everybody is uh, everyone's a liberal until it affects them personally, right? Yes, and, and that's why the mama logs is the place where I can I, I really I guess able to talk about what it needs to navigate um, motherhood um, as a black woman and say all the things I wanted to say, you know, in the, in the PTA meetings or, or what have you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about that play. I I'm so interested in the question of audience. I've been talking about this with a lot of the playwrights I've interviewed on this show and, you know, it's it's the question of whether are you writing just for your own community or are you writing to express something about your community to kind of some imagined, probably white, uh, neutral uh, theater goer. Um, do you feel like with for you was the monologues a play that you wrote kind of uh, to be written by you as a black woman for other black women, especially black uh, mothers who who share some of these experiences, or do you feel like you're trying to kind of create a bridge to people who don't have those experiences to help them understand what it's what it's like to live in your shoes? Well, I think as an unpartnered mother, uh, I think that um, black mother, I am talking to every doing it all because 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 my mm-hmm. to get through my day, I have to do eight hundred things <laughs> to Lord to, to keep every, all the balls in the air. So I want to speak to other. I want to make black middle class mother single motherhood intelligible to uh, other mm-hmm. people, but I also want uh, to send a um, shout out to those other moms of my, my mothers who I know and love and uh, who are uh, friends of mine who are engineers and lawyers who are having to be single uh, parents and uh, doing, you know, amazing jobs, but also but are constantly unintelligible to whoever they, so if they end up, at the you know at the dog park or whatever people are like what are you doing here on a Tuesday at three o'clock you know or two o'clock right or that's sorry eleven a.m. right so how are you mm-hmm. are you a nanny um, or the um, being among um, working class uh, women and um, realizing that your your class privilege is showing right you know that you know um, mm-hmm. so so that's you know to the black middle class moms and also um, a um, definitely addressing what it means to help your child navigate the educational system that you you've been able to successfully navigate so, so you know uh the horrors that are there for them to have to um work through um and so so it's also for, for black middle class mothers um particular single mothers to be able to feel like okay i'm not crazy for having these feelings or experiences um but also uh, the, some of the moms from, that i uh, new from my son's um, elementary school years um, came to the show and were like, Oh my God, you know, like, you know, <laughs> it was kind of delightful. Um, and it was actually, you know, and, and some that I didn't actually hang out with, but you know, they uh, did a mom's night and they, I guess they didn't know what they were going to be getting. And I was also happy though, to have my son's principal there who was a black, was a black woman. She's gone on to do another a, a higher position in the school district uh, who was navigating this magnet school as a leader that 
had um, literally in its walls, and it happens in more than one school in Austin, where you have the most privileged people in the city and the um, the and some of the some of the least, uh, and, mm-hmm. and they're separated by oh, the magnet group, and then there's the they call it I guess the academy group. Uh, I remember um, as a child myself. I remember that uh, there was tracking, um, and there were there the, the Early birds and the late birds, and you know, it's kind of think about the idea of like women's be an early bird and a late bird, you know. And it's supposed to be innocuous terms that actually you look back on as you as you grow older, like oh my god, how horrific, you know. Who you know the quote unquote smart kids, and I, I just, uh, yeah. So I, I, the monologues is, is is also about the absurdity of all of it as well, the day to day, you know, um, living and navigating. Yeah, that play felt of the three both the most personal. And the most absurd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, and so, and so, I think the I love just like my first play, Single Black, Single Black Female, is very similar to that in style in terms of giving actresses, especially um, mature black women, um, access to performing all these different kinds of people, from you know a Baptist preacher to a um, a, a, a twelve-year-old soccer phenom to you know to I mean, you know just all mm-hmm. the so I, I love that part of it, but that's also how I kind of imagine deal with the world is like all the voices and all the different um, kind of circumstances, circumstances of, of, of my life all come together at once. Um, um, and, and I want to, uh, yeah, in, in, in these moments you're, you're um, trying to uh, just basically go get groceries and, but then you're in a moment of, um, confrontation with sometimes with uh, I'll call it a, a racial moment where you're like, and, and really at that moment, you're really, you're just trying to get your, you know, your almond milk. You're not really trying to have a moment <laughs> with somebody about, you know, and, 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 or you're flying somewhere and you're like, you're happy you made the plane. You're, you know, you know, happily falling in, into your seat. And then the person actually wants to sees you with your laptop or whatever you're doing and wants to, you know, now find out what you do for a living. And, you know, basically um, I call it, um, Talking bear syndrome of people are like, well, oh my good, you you teach at the universe and you do oh, and they always and for some reason white people always ask, and do you teach graduate students? As if no, they don't allow me to do that. You know that that's the line they draw. That's you know, like, and so it's like hilarious. And it's like so, and then looking at and they find out, then they then they you know, start asking you where you went to school, and then it's just it's like oh my god, I've been around bears before, but you're a talking bear. I'm so this is amazing. You are really honey. A talking bear, come see. I mean, and it's, and it's so I'm starting to think, you know, I start lying to people because, like, I don't right. owe you my bio- biography. Who are you? You're a lady on the plane. I mean, what? Yeah. It's a sense of and so. What's been striking about the, the moment with, you know, um, I guess the racial awakening for many white people that happened this spring and, and the George Floyd moment, mm-hmm. the Breonna Taylor moment. It's it's and I'm like, and, and the white friends, you know, meaning well meaning, but it's like you want to send me bring cookies over and it's like, well, where were the cookies? I wanted cookies when Tamara Rice died. Where were you? Mm-hmm. Where were you when Rodney King was beaten? I've been watching this my entire life and you don't, you're showing up in 2020 with cookies. I don't. Yeah. I wonder, why do you think, I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of asking you to interpret the whites for our audience, but why yeah. do you think it was yeah. this year? Why this year and not, you know, the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests in uh, 2015, 2016? Uh, why wasn't 
it any of these other moments until until this year that kind of brought like the average not particularly political white person out in the streets for the first time they were home the world was paused and they, right uh, nothing uh, else to do and, and it, it did look at yourself i mean it, it a, lot, a lot of people are having a lot of uh, awakenings during this moment uh, being you know quiet with oneself and having to be so that's one of the things i think that younger um as soon as i remember when the election of trump happened watching a coalition of hundreds of ut students marching the next morning um trans students white students black students latino asian south asian you know uh, cross age and gender and um I remember being on the on the news. They heard the marching, and I came outside and you know gave them the, the black power uh, fist um, that that day. And um, so I think that's part of it is that that generation um, they've been going to they've been paying attention to different kind of art and different kinds of conversations. That so that's part of it. That they're, and they're pushing their parents, but the people that are my or contemporaries age wise, I think that. Um, um, the the, the the big shift between Obama and Trump has made them um, it was you know whiplash and and, and I think at some point that they're finally having to I hope realize their own complicity in uh, maintaining the status quo um, because I mean how many people are on boards that look you know everybody looks the same they don't know I mean it's just uh, there's no there there no one's hands are clean unless you're you know in the streets and upending these things. And we'll see how long all, everybody had a, you know, post on their website, every business, but what, you know, how have your, your hiring practices changed? You've gotten rid of Aunt Jemima's, uh, but what are you going to do about who's um, not just the CEO, but how are you treating the least uh, powerful workers? How are you, who's, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just so much has to be done. So that, you know, that brings us back to underground, which is, you know, what's really going to change that? Um, because we have people now in Hollywood, these white male um, uh, former showrunners and directors uh, f- uh, feeling like, I, how, and it's so, so impossible for a white man to get a job. When the statistics don't even play, out, play that out, that this came out with statistics, right. they're still by far 74%, something like that. I don't know exact stats, but stop it. And yeah. also this idea of uh, the expectation that um, you have to give something up um, that is rightfully yours as opposed to feeling like, oh my God, they caught me. I've been stealing for my entire life. That's a very different kind of response. I've been stealing from other people. I mean, and it's not just, you know, the, how well this all plays out. It's, it's, it's actually about the mortality rates of African, you know, literally stealing people's lives. So yeah. I think it's fascinating to see how much horror is being done around African you know, American horror and dealing with um, racism and, and racism. I mean, I'm fascinated watching right now um, Lovecraft Country, of course, the the IP, the you know, based on a book by by author, but how what Jordan Peele and most importantly the showrunner Misha Green is doing is showing basically people of color have been living in a horror movie since you know. <laughs> The beginning of this nation, right? Sixteen nineteen project, you know, which lays that out. So, it's just to me very. Um, is people have to now now are, are facing that all of it is a lie. I remember teaching a course at UT called 
um, the revolution will be dramatized and we're looking at plays and films for the most part about first the civil rights movement, then the black power movement, and then the final part was Black Lives Matter. And I had students who, this is a class I taught oh, like six years ago, had never heard of the Black Panthers. And wow. pride in my class because they realized the people that taught them, that they thought cared about them, K through 12, had been lying to them about the world. Mm-hmm. They gave them an incomplete sense of that. And these are white students who were just devastated, never heard of Angela Davis, never heard of Malcolm X. Um, and so, and, and, and this is, you know, often I'm teaching something and deciding on a course, I'm thinking, oh gosh, they're going to be like, oh God, this again. And looking at me like, and oh, but broke my heart broke my heart because the last part of the class students are allowed to create um, a piece of their own about any movement that is important to them. So some people worked on gun violence, others worked on um, some students worked on um, police uh, abuse, whatever it is that you find, you know, some people dealt with um, food justice. And I had a trans student who was in the poem and just transitioning and we had a conversation and I said, well, you know, you, you know, maybe to look at what you know, compare what's going on now with um, in terms of the uh, trans and uh, queer community and um, ACT UP, and that child had never heard of ACT UP. Mm. This is not ancient history. No, not at all. And so, and it's also information that this ch- you know, I say child, but you know, <laughs> I've gotten that point in my life where I'm that age. Uh, like these are you know children who, who saved this person's life. Literally knowing about ACT UP and the kinds of political organizing that happened. Um, and so it's clear to me that um, folks are now realizing that they've been part of all of this themselves and have, you know, that, that, that they, the willful, quote unquote, ignorance um, and, and their unwillingness to um, go toe to toe with Uncle George during Thanksgiving about um, some of these things has led to the deaths of people generationally. Oh, you know, and people talk about, oh my God, everybody's learning about Tulsa right now. I'm like, Tulsa's one. It's only one. Mm-hmm. There's so many others that have been written about that, you know, if, you know, if you read, I, I, I teach in my Black Middle Class course, we begin in the beginning of the night of 1900 with um, the book by Charles Chestnut, um, the Marrow of Tradition, which is about the Williamson race riot. When you talk about race riots, it's about white people slaughtering black people. This whole idea of race riot about black people attacking, that's the big fear. It's also mm-hmm. what's kind of under, you know, part of underground, right? Underground, underground in the country is underground fear of, oh my God, when they're when the, they're, they're gonna do to us what we did to them. All right. Um, so that is um, Something I really feel like the students learn from about the black middle class from 1900 to the present and look at how black middle class has navigated racial terror. And it's this novel, Marrow Traditions, a brilliant one about a, a, a physician and mm-hmm. his family and how he just to figure out how he's going to um, su- support those who are trying to protect the black community um, and what's going to happen to him and his family. So, anyway, so and, the, and it begins that how you have the black middle class person as. That, you know, the, this holier than thou figure, um, and that's changed over time, right? You know, to get the black middle class seen as a sellout, and then you now we're at a place where they're just another type of black person, as opposed to the the best and the brightest, talented tenth idea of Du Bois or kind of the um, 
Oreo um, sellout um, reliefs that people had, like um, E. Franklin Frazier's um, mm-hmm. Like Bourgeoisie or something like that. So I, I and I love teaching um, that course, and because and I've been teaching it since I was a graduate student, um, and and it's uh, don't teach it as, that often, but it, whenever I do, it's um, also clear to me that I'm oftentimes teaching students who are now who are like myself making. Uh, when I was their age, making a class transition because of the education opportunity. Um, so I'm happy and proud to be at UT that has um, gone to the Supreme Court to make, maintain affirmative action policies. So that's, um, and um, I've been struck by how brilliant the students are. Um, and, and just, I, I called all of them when they graduate, I said, and now you're my mentor. Um, mm. and, and many of my graduate students have, have taken on that role, been very supportive of me, you know, because and we, and last time I was in New York, uh, right before the world closed, I was meeting with my former undergraduate and graduate student and having lunch and talking about theater and, um, we, you know, go see theater together, talk about theater there. Um, and I think that's the best way to mentor is to understand that you're, it's a, it's a give and take relationship. It's not just one way. Uh, there's things that they know. Um, that I do not, and I bring them my wisdom, and, and they share theirs, and we will um, hopefully uh, have across generational um, uh, conversations about how to um, finally be emancipated. Because um, you know, which was shocking for my black friends as we were t- you know talking about all the you know food deliveries that people were trying to make <laughs> was that how we realized, oh my goodness, in order to survive this, there's so much I had to ignore. ignore. And um, and I, I think that Monroe, um, as a play, shows what happens when you ignore this, you know, ignore the horror, is that there is a price to pay psychologically. Um, and I, that's why I love the, the Pulitzer Prize winning play by Jackie Sibley's Drury, um, Fairview about what it means mm-hmm. to, um, to live a life. Cause she's, you know, to, that, you know I won't give it away, but, you know, but, but what it means to live a life where you have to see so much of your humanity so that you are not crushed by the institutions and the politics of the place that um, you and your ancestors have been in for so much time that you have nowhere else to, you know, call home really and, and to make sense of this place. But it's, um, it's really striking. So I, I've, I've definitely felt once since the 2016 election much bolder in my conversations with uh, everyone that I deal with and I no longer, no longer um, sugarcoat racial issues. And that morning I went dropped my son up at school and the white parents were talking. I said, I said, that's a conversation you should have with each other. And how do you, you know, not, how do you feel? How do you feel? Even with the George Floyd, oh, well, you must feel terrible. I'm like, well, you must feel terrible. I mean, <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. yeah, I do, but don't you feel terrible? Because that's done in your name and in protecting you and um, your world. And, th- and the fact that don't you feel terrible that you didn't, that you didn't reach out um, when Trayvon Martin was killed, that you didn't find the words or the cookie recipe. <laughs> so, um, and, and also, you know, and talk to your white friends. That's who you should be going to and, to, and meeting with and, and white family members about what, what are you guys going to do about it? And, 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 and Toya Morrison said that. It was a great quote she did on in her interview with Bill, um, the now, the now uh, infamous, uh, what was his, gosh, not 
She, oh, is this the Juno Diaz one? No, no, no. This is Toni Morrison in her interview with um, Charlie Rose, or was, oh yes, Charlie Rose, yeah. Yeah. About what are you guys? What are you going to do about it? You have a horrible problem. I mean, because the thing about it's like, what should we do? It's like, well, it's like my, my, you know, your child destroying the house, having a party and looking at you like, well, what should we do now? You destroyed the house, clean the house up and fix it and don't do it anymore. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a little, you know, we want to have a, the UK comes to you and says, well, you know, I had a party, destroyed the house. Can we get together a committee or a, um, some kind of, you know, group to advise me about what should be done now can you serve on that actually can you run it mom i mean mm-hmm. it's really if you, if you start walking it out it, 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 shows, it shows us how ludicrous the all is it's like what are you asking <laughs> I mean, I, yeah asking right, the whales, yeah to clear because talk to the whales about the ocean you know, the ocean is polluted now what do you think we should can we get together a group of whales <laughs> Come on. I'm going to be crazy. I mean, like, yeah. Right. I'm going to, that's going to be my new favorite metaphor to just describe that the, yeah, how, ask, it's like asking whales to clean up the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like asking black people to solve racism. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, maybe not because people, you know, because then you want to equate black people with animals and then we're, then we're in another. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good, good call there. It's, it's hard. They could call it the crisis of analogy. It's hard to come up with analogy. So it's like, you've done something wrong. And you're asking someone else. If someone's done done you a harm, would you ask them to help you figure out how to fix the harm? Identify mm-hmm. the harm. Identify the harm. Figure out the solutions for it, and then not do it. That's the thing that was even better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't forget. I have a good friend who was part of the President's Commission on Race. Clinton had. That was what? How many years ago was that? You know what? Yeah. What, what came out of that? And, and it's going to take, you know, the, 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 all the moms that are doing the, the brownie drive at the school, you know, to take in some of that energy that you're going to use to make sure you can hire special tech specialists for your the neighborhood school, basically, because basically you're using public funds to create a private school, right? All you have to do is have these fundraisers and then you get the extra stuff because um, mm-hmm. you, your families have enough money to do that. Um, but you don't have to pay full tuition, right? You have to pay 40, 40,000 a year, but just, you, know, you, 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 you donate 10,000 and you get to have your name on a banner outside. Thank you so much to the Suskin family for your contribution. We're so happy you stand there at the, at the assembly and, oh, get out of here. Push up, push up, push up. <laughs> no, I'm like, no, we're not doing that. So yeah, so, so I'm fun to talk to. Can you imagine, you know, the parents see me, they go the other way. They're like, oh my God, so-and-so's mom, run. She's here, turn the lights off. At the, at the front office, they're like, turn off, turn off the lights. She's going to come talk to us. Um, yeah, I can go on and on about this. But yeah, I, I think that'd be a good question, you know, to ask white people. Why did, why did you decide to have a bake sale in April 2020 instead of all the other times? Now, I have one more question before we go, which you've touched on a bit, but I'd love for you to kind of... Uh, elaborate on on the relationship between your scholarly activity and your uh, your activity as a playwright because you're not a professor of theater studies and also a playwright which is more more conventional but you're you're a professor who's written uh, you know a, a, a one scholarly uh, book called beyond the black lady and you've also written 
many plays. How do you balance those two pursuits? I mean, it's like kind of like having two careers at once. Thank you for acknowledging that. My Dane is listening, I hope. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I'm actually writing uh, at present. I'm actually um, trying to um, leave some um, breadcrumbs, gluten-free bread, um, <laughs> for those who are coming behind me and I'm writing uh, my own, uh, finally writing my manifesto. People talk about having a, um, I guess, what is it? A um, artist statement. But for mm-hmm. me, it has to be a kind of a, a manifesto. Um, I, call it, I call it dancing on the slash choreography, 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 help me with it. Choreographing, 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 choreographing uh, uh, the life as a black feminist artist scholar. Um, yeah. So, uh, so as you know, I'm a black feminist artist and a scholar, and they're they, yes, you're right, completely distinct. I studied uh, modern thought and literature at Stanford, which is a great PhD program. With basically a little bit, pretty much make your own PhD program, um, and in that I you know decided to do, look at how black middle class women are represented in. Um, representing their sexuality in a, a variety of genres. So I looked at autobiography, I looked at film, uh, um, fiction, as well as theater. And um, that was my dissertation. It became Beyond Black Lady, Sexuality in the New African American Middle Class. Um, and while I was in graduate school, I took a playwriting class, the only one I ever taken, which was with Sheree Moraga. And um, during the, that, actually, that's where I actually read that class. I wrote Monroe, the first draft of Monroe. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, I, she thought it was so good that she wanted to um, invite me to join San Francisco um, theaters, uh, have a playwriting group. So I you know, started going to San Francisco, going, you know, living near campus. I went back to the city of my birth and started doing these playwriting groups. And I, um, was working on kind of these scenes of what it means to navigate at the time of my life, navigating what it means to be a black middle class woman or black, I'm sorry, black woman, you know, who's smart and funny and uh, and gorgeous, and trying to figure out um, why am I still single then? What the hell's going on? So, single black female was you know was not called that at the time, but then I remember she, I guess, there was a Bravo Theater was having uh, wanted to do an afternoon of new plays in progress and my writing partners were like hey you're gonna be part of that and i said well i can't do that i'm sorry i'm getting my phd from stanford you know i have my oral examinations coming up i can't be possibly involved with such folly and they cursed me out and i was like okay fine so i remember going downtown san francisco to listen to the first read through of what i pulled together all these all these i don't know i guess i um vignettes vignettes or scenes yeah yes and i got down there and they've it was funny, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So that was a Friday night, and it was the reading. Uh, the reading was on Sunday, and I went to the reading, and uh, people were cracking up. And Adele Prendini, who ran the Theater Renaissance in San Francisco, walked up to me and said, "I want it for next season." Wow! That was the beginning of my so the, what what couldn't go into the dissertation was in the plays, was also with, and, and vice versa, right? And so they were born at the same time, and then I realized now. Uh, that's how I work, that I work on uh, a question that's getting, you know, that I'm trying to understand. And I try to, to articulate my answer through both theater and through 
um, scholarship. So I'm working on a book right now on how contemporary playwrights represent African-American history, just kind of flashpoint moments in black history. And um, I have written my history plays, um, both um, Monroe and then uh, Gold and um, the, the, the final part of the Black Migration Trilogy, Flood, will all be um, my way of kind of thinking about this one thing about Black history, which is the Great Migration and how that migration to California and back down south, the remigration, which kind of follows the life of my family. My parents met in California, but they're both from different parts of Louisiana. And um, and I'm now living in the South or South by Southwest, depends on the, who you're talking to. But um, so I so I, that, I find it to be a very invigorating way of um, being in conversation with different different audiences. So I love being in conversation with, with scholars, and I love being in conversation with audiences that come to see my plays or read my plays. And I people uh, who direct my work often say, you know, she's got always got some you know um, symbols in the work that are from you know that are scholarly things that you know so it's slipping slip, slipping in the medicine i guess in a way that people don't necessarily taste it so it's been a wonderful um life that i've made for myself i uh, consider myself a rule breaker and i was discouraged by different people um along the way to you know pick one um and i was blessed to have people who supported me both my uh my MA thesis director, um, Valerie Smith, who's uh, now president of Swarthmore, and my um, former uh, chair, my dissertation chair um, at, for Stanford, Harry J. Elam Jr., who's also an artist scholar. Um, he, um, they both supported me being all of me. Um, and now he's president of Occidental, Occidental, Occidental College. Um, so I know how to pick mentors, <laughs> but they're wonderful friends. Um, Either that or your influence on them is what uh, enabled them to reach such well, academic yeah, 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 I doubt it. Yeah, they, were, they were way on our way to being amazing people. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have um, people that of that stature look at me and be like, you, you, can, do, um, you can do whatever you want. And, you, and, and I remember seeing like female, uh, Professor Elam, President Elam, um, came to the show and at the end looked at me and said, you could you, you, you have a career doing this too. Um, and well, I feel like that faith in you is very much vindicated by this present volume. I enjoyed <laughs> reading these plays so much. I hadn't been familiar with your work before I read them, but I, I, was, uh, I was very moved and I, I found them funny and provocative all at the same time. So thank you so much for the opportunity to read your plays and to interview you for New Books in Performing Arts. Thank you so much, Andy. I've just had a, uh, this has been one of my favorite interviews and I um, really hope, now I got to write another book so I can talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Definitely so be sure to let me know.